I think about it every year at this time of the year. We would eagerly anticipate maybe the second most eager anticipation of the year after Christmas when we were kids. We would eagerly anticipate our church's 4th of July picnic. Now that doesn't seem like a lot perhaps to most people, but we really had quite the picnic. We would go, our family and another family early, we'd get to the gate of the park where we were all going to gather and we would line up waiting eagerly for them to open the gate so that we could rush in and claim a spot for our church's picnic. It was a highlight of the year. We would get there and we would dash out of the car and I can remember my mother saying, you run ahead and you get that spot. And we would do that. There really wasn't much competition, I don't think. But she knew how to get us moving and get a little of that energy taken care of, I guess. Well, we, we would claim that spot and then we would have breakfast. It was a little bit of a later breakfast. The park didn't open until 7.30 or 8, but we didn't mind. It was glorious. And we had all day to run around. And in those days, nobody worried about the kids because it was safe. We could run on the trails up and down and around. We could play when we got a little older in the softball game. It was a grand and glorious celebration. Almost always followed at the end of the day in the evening going someplace to watch fireworks. Well, we celebrated Independence Day and it's a day worth celebrating. And you're probably thinking about how you're going to celebrate now. And I encourage you to remind yourself and your friends of how important it is that God has given us in this nation the gift of liberty. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we stretch toward God's high calling and remind each other that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And when you look at the story of the founding of our nation, you see over and over evidence that God intervened and helped in ways we never could have imagined at times that we really needed it as a nation. And he has given us this gift of liberty, a gift we should cherish and be good stewards of so that it doesn't slip away. And I want us today to think about that a little bit. I want us today to talk about some of the things from the early days from that time when we when we found ourselves as a nation struggling wondering what in the world had happened in many ways and trying to find a way to reclaim what our founding fathers understood was the god-given gift of liberty now we've been thinking about some of these ideas, how to, how to manage our lives in a, in a world like this, how to manage our lives when so many things are counter to the things that we believe, when so many ideologies are competing for attention and actually disagreeing with what God says. We've been trying to figure out how do you live in a coercive environment? Now it's not coercive in the sense that we fear for legal redress against us. We don't fear paying with our lives or even going to jail most of the time. I mean, there have been people that have struggled with that. I'm not minimizing that. But most of us, we just think about how, how to live in an environment that seems to be increasingly hostile to the things that we believe are valuable, important, and true. And I've suggested that we can use the example of Daniel in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 to be specific, as a guide and a help to navigate these times. 
Now, you may remember, if you're familiar with Daniel's story, now most people, they know Daniel in the lion's den, but they don't really know as much about the earlier stories in the book of Daniel. I encourage you to read all of them. Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Great stories. Some of them are more familiar than others, but I think you'll gain it huge amount of insight into the kind of people we need to be for these days. But anyway, back to chapter 1. And you may remember that we've talked about chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, about how God gave his people, Jerusalem, the king, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's very important we talked about that Nebuchadnezzar didn't win this battle. He came prepared to fight and expecting to win, but he didn't win. God gave the city to him. If God had been intending to keep it, he would have kept it. Nebuchadnezzar would have gone home the loser. But you may remember God's people had been unfaithful and God had repeatedly sent prophets to warn them and they had repeatedly turned away from God and chased other gods. And finally, God recognized that he could have patience no longer. And he gave the city, gave his people to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar took them into exile, destroyed the city. And he specifically, Nebuchadnezzar, specifically took some of the best and brightest young men of the royal court in Jerusalem. The men who had served the king in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar took with him to Babylon. And he gave specific instructions for that. And you can read those in Daniel chapter 1. You see, the idea was that you captured all the stuff and you captured the people that could help you. And so as the victor, Nebuchadnezzar expected these young men to serve him in his royal court, and he expected, because he was the victor, that they would provide some value to him by way of counsel. They would become what we would call wise men in the court of the Babylonian king. And I use that wise men on purpose because there is some evidence, although I haven't seen any proof, that the wise men of the story of Jesus' birth came from this area of the world and maybe knew to watch for the Messiah because of Daniel's influence. Again, we can't prove that, but there's a lot of things that line up to make us suspicious that it might be so. Well, anyway, Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon. They were instructed to learn the literature and language of the Babylonians. They were put through a course of study so they could be well-prepared, know all the things the king expected them to know, so that they could be good counselors to the king. Well, as part of that, they were provided not only instruction, but they were provided place to stay and, importantly, a diet. They were to be fed from the king's rations, the king's table. Well, that sounded like it should be a good thing. You'd think they would get better food that way, but as it turned out, Daniel recognized something as going on that he could not accept. Now, we are quite confident. We know that the literature and the language of the Babylonians would have been in much of it in in great part offensive to Daniel and his friends because they served the one true God and they knew it. And to learn about the superstitions, the astrology of the Babylonians would not have been sensible to them and they would have undoubtedly struggled, but they they learned all of that apparently. There's no record that they objected to learning but they did object to the food. And Daniel said, no, I'm not going to eat that. Well, that refusal would be an automatic death sentence. You didn't refuse the order of the king of Babylon. You just didn't. It was a very coercive environment. 
But Daniel said no. He believed that eating that food would defile him and he would not be defiled. And so he refused. Along with four friends, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may remember the story of the fiery furnace. Those three guys were the guys. Well, they stood up and, and said no, they couldn't do that. And they asked the man who provided the rations, the diet, the food, if he could give them an alternate diet, something different. They wanted, for lack of a better description, vegetables. Well, the man reminded them that it could be his head if if the king found out because he was responsible and he didn't want them looking bad because he had changed that. And they assured him they would take responsibility for that. And if he would try it for 10 days and then see how they were doing, then they could make the decision after that. And sure enough, he agreed to the trial. He agreed to the trial because the scriptures remind us that God gave Daniel and his friends favor with this man. So he looked upon them kindly and favorably, and he went along with the experiment. Sure enough, they appeared better. They did better. They learned better. Toward the end of the chapter, we find out they were better than all the rest of the royal advisors in the court. And as a result of their commitment to remain faithful to God, God blessed them and gave them the wisdom and the knowledge, the insight they needed for the, to manage in the Babylonian court, to navigate all the ups and downs. And he gave Daniel special insight into visions and dreams, which would prove very important in chapter 2. So we then said, well, can we use the story of Daniel to help us navigate these times? And, and I don't mean to go back to this unnecessarily or too much. I mean to go back to it because I really think there's, there's important stuff we can get out of this. And I want to remind us of something that, that uh, Everett Piper, he was the one time and former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He became president there at a time of great crisis for the university and led them out of it, saved the university in no small measure. And as part of that, he refocused the university on its mission, and he established four important tenets, I guess you'd say, or principles, four important things to keep the university tracking in the direction it needed to go. And so he talked about, at that time, the primacy of Christ. The university was to make the, the primacy of Christ central. He talked about how the university was to, to keep the scriptures central. So the primacy of Christ and the priority of the scriptures. Too often in higher education, the scriptures are not a priority. They are maybe at best secondary. They're okay, but we need something more than just that. Well, he said the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, that's something important we should remember. Don't let anybody talk you into the Scriptures being less significant or insightful or beneficial than something else. So he kept the primacy of Christ, the prior or priority of Scripture, and then he talked about the pursuit of truth. So in all of this, as we keep Christ at the forefront, as we keep the scriptures at the forefront, we remember that what we're doing in all of this is pursuing truth. So in all of the academic pursuits, we pursue truth. And and you and I, that's what we need to do as well in our day, in our time. And I think you can begin to see why this is valuable. The primacy of Christ, he is one. The priority of the scriptures, they give us insight and wisdom, what we need to navigate these days. In the same way, if you read Daniel chapter 1, you'll discover 
that Daniel, it's just mentioned almost in passing, but it's mentioned that they knew the Bible from their time in Jerusalem. So we have a real good idea the way they knew how to navigate in there was because they understood what the law of God had said and how they needed to respond. So that led them to pursue truth, which was what would lead them in the right way to go, both before God and, as it turns out, in the Babylonian court. And then finally, Everett Piper said, the practice of wisdom. In other words, we put into practice what we've discovered by keeping Christ primary, by keeping the, pers- the, the scriptures in the forefront, by pursuing truth, and by finally practicing wisdom. If there's anything that we often come up short on these days, it's that last one, we know what to do and we don't do it, the practice of wisdom. So I've suggested that we could use the experience of Daniel and, and this grid, you might say, of the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom as a way to kind of navigate and evaluate and keep us on track in these times. And I think it is, and I think we should not forget that. And I've been thinking, now, how did the founders of our country come to know that things weren't right? What was it that caused them to decide it was time to separate from England? Were they just a bunch of rebellious people? Or was there something else going on that that we need to be aware of, that we need to pay attention to? Was there Was there something or some things happening that guided them? And was there any influence of the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom? Well, to be honest with you, I could find nothing in what I looked at that used those four things straight up. There was no obvious use of them. The same, the same way in Daniel, there was no obvious use of them in Daniel. But you can see how keeping God first how remaining true to the scriptures, how pursuing what God said was true and what was actually a reflection of reality, which is a good way to think about truth. Truth is a reflection of reality. And then the practice of wisdom, you can see how they put that into practice in Daniel. Well, the founders drew a line. They called it tyranny. They recognized that what the king of England was doing was not right, and it was tyranny. Now, how did they know that? What, what happened or what did, were they aware of that led them to conclude that the king was guilty of tyranny? That, that's, that's really important to think about because do we really think that our founders were just a bunch of wild-eyed uh, troublemakers and they just wanted to do that out of some sense of ego or desire to get their way instead of the king having his way? Was there more to it? Well, there was much more to it. And I think we need to remind ourselves of a couple of things. And I want to just give us a little bit of understanding, and it's not a huge amount because I'm not a great historian, but I'm careful enough to look and to try to understand and try to put together what's been going on. And so I'd I'd like us to think about two things. One, the Christian influence of the time, and two, the influence of English history. What was really going on in those days that had had any historical precedent? Well, turns out quite a lot of things had historical precedent, and they, they, the founders, depended upon that. 
But first of all, let's let's take a look at this religious component. We've often heard that that our country is based on Christian principles, and it is. We've often had people ask the question, well, is it a Christian nation? And depending on how you define that will, lead, will mean what you conclude. Generally speaking, we are not a nation that was set up to be ruled by God or ruled by some church authority in the sense that would make us a Christian nation. At the same time, we definitely were established as a nation. The structure of our government definitely reflects an understanding of the biblical truth, what we called earlier the priority of Scripture. And that's reflected in the religious nature of the men in the Continental Congress who made these decisions. Now, clearly, these were political decisions they were making. They were part of the country's development and experience. They reflected the desires of the people. But as we find out, religion was right central to all of it and influenced their thinking. Now, I take this and I'm grateful to a man named John Fee who wrote a book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? You might find that interesting. But he wrote several pages about the religion and the Continental Congress. And he's pretty even-handed about it. i got to give him credit for that. But it's pretty straightforward to say there's a lot of Christian influence. In fact, he says that the world of that time was very different than our own. He said in that world, in those days, back in 1775, 1776, people were Christians. Most people were Christians. Or if they weren't Christians in however you might want to define it, they were at least affiliated in one way or another with a Christian church or denomination. They were not people who denied or resisted or walked away from Christian faith. They understood it and aligned with it. One historian, Derek Davis, wrote this, The Continental Congress functioned essentially under traditional Western political theory, that is, on the belief that religion is central to a well-ordered polity. So they understood that their Christian faith was a central part of what would lead them in the direction of the right decisions for the nations. And there were a lot of important statements that they made and how they called on God at various times in the development of the country, both prior to 1776 and after. In, in 19, or pardon me, 1778, Congress recorded this in their official records. Our dependence was not upon man, it was upon him, capital H, him, referring to God, who hath commanded us to love our enemies and to render good for evil. Now think about that. In the midst of, of having to go through a revolutionary war, they were still talking about loving their enemies. And they believed, John Fee goes on to remind us, that they believed that God had delivered them from various calamities and aided their military efforts. There was an address called the Inhabitants of the United States of America, and Congress asked the question in that address, how often have we been reduced to distress and yet been raised up? They go on to remind us that deliverance happened in such a variety of instances, so peculiarly marked almost by the direct interposition of providence, that not to feel and acknowledge his protection would be the height of impious gratitude. Wow, that's pretty straight language about how they acknowledge that, that God had helped them and a failure to recognize that would have been 
a real failure of gratitude. They, they affirmed that the God of battles in whom was our trust hath conducted us through the paths of danger and distress to the thresholds of security. Now, isn't that something? God got them through danger to security. They said in another letter that they said, they said, God Almighty superintends and governs men in, and their actions. They thanked God for the, for the military victories they had, they had achieved and were eager to let people know that he was the one who delivered them from that. They, they affirmed that the arduous contest with Great Britain in its commencement was sustained under almost every possible disadvantage, and it has been conducted with such success as manifest to us the peculiar favor of divine providence. Wow, think about that. They had almost no possibility of winning, and they recognized that, but they recognized that God had sustained them with his mighty hand. Now, they say things differently than we do. They didn't say mighty hand. They said peculiar favor of divine providence. Well, that's, that's kind of flowery language that means God intervened. He helped us. He was kind to us. And so they regularly acknowledged God's help in the process, and it reflected their Christian understanding because that's who they were. And again, I don't think it helps us. Every now and then I would get people want to nitpick about this Christian virtue or that or that belief or this belief. You know, I, I just don't think anything is gained by all that pickiness. It's not up to me to judge. It's up to me to love people. Same for you. I'm perfectly willing to evaluate them. And if they did not operate or acknowledge God did not operate under Christian principles, I would say that, and we we all should acknowledge that. But I don't think we should be, you know, we aren't the judge of their authentic Christianity, are we? And it would have been expressed differently in those days than it was for us. Now, they appealed to God for help during this time. They, um, they, they made at one point in uh, 1778 made a solemn appeal to the tribunal of unerring wisdom and justice, to that almighty ruler of princes whose kingdom is over all. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward, saying we need God's help and saying to God, you need to help us. It's absolutely necessary. We won't be able to manage. They, uh, they would issue a variety down through the various years, a variety of proclamations, and often they were calling people to fast and give thanks for God's help. So they would write these resolutions, and, and they were really about days of fasting and humiliation. Now think about that. That's just, think about what would happen in our country today if Congress started calling the nation to days of fasting and humiliation before God. Think about what people would say. What, what would we say? I hope we would say, isn't that great? They finally recognize that we need God's help. Isn't that great? They finally recognize we need to trust in God. Isn't that great? We've got people who have enough wisdom and courage to recognize that, that the practice of wisdom is to turn to God and to thank Him and to ask for His help. And they did this regularly down throughout the whole period of time as the country was formed, both, both, as I said, before 1776 and after 1776. They would make these proclamations calling the people to prayer and fasting. They would recognize that they needed to do that. 
the proclamation of March 11, 1780, for example, they said this, It having pleased the righteous governor of the world for the punishment of our manifold offenses to permit the sword of war still to harass our country. They said that because of their offenses, God had allowed war, and they were calling people to repent and to confess before God. Isn't that amazing? They recognized that God had brought war because people had sinned. And they thought the only remedy, and they were right, was to humble themselves before God and to pray and to seek his face. Over and over, they asked for God's intervention. In March of 1676, they said, to supplicate his interposition for averting the threatened danger and prospering our strenuous efforts in the cause of freedom, virtue, and posterity. Amazingly strong language calling on God, amazingly resolute. And, and this was a repeated kind of thing, both by the Continental Congress and often by the states. The states would cooperate that, and they would call the states to days of fasting and humiliation. They recognized that they needed to turn to God, and they, their, their only hope was to trust in God. And so they, they would repeatedly do this, and they had no hesitation to call the nation to national repentance, none whatsoever. I, I, you know, the sad reality today is that if our, if our leaders in Congress would call for days of repentance and humiliation, too many people in the press would mock and laugh. Who do we think God is, they would say. And yet, isn't that what we need to do? And you know, the other side of that is, I'm sure you've thought of this already, haven't you? Because you're a very smart audience. You've recognized that even if Congress won't call us to pray, to beg God to help us, we can. And we can do that on behalf of our nation. And I hope you will. In the midst of giving thanks to God during this season, I hope you will take time to humble yourself. Maybe your church will take some time to recognize that we need God's help. And maybe this is a good time in the midst of all of this to remind ourselves that that our help does come from the Lord. I'm, if, I hope you'll excuse my transparency here, but I'm regularly disappointed when I hear otherwise fine people talk about how they've given up. They don't think there's any hope for the nation. And, and I look at that and I think, well, you know, there's a lot of terrible things. There are a lot of things that, that people are trying to, to say are right that God clearly says are wrong. And you could make a long list of them. So could I. There are many ways that people are turning away from God and saying, we know better than God. We're going to do what we want to do. We don't care what God thinks. That happens all too often. But what disturbs me is, and I hope you're not one of them. I really do. What disturbs me when otherwise good-hearted people, faithful followers of Jesus, people who have given of themselves and their means sometimes, sometimes they've given a lot of money to Christian causes, but they'll say, I just don't think there's any hope. I think we're too far gone. Well, let's follow the example of the early Continental Congress, and let's pray, let's fast, pray, humiliate ourselves, or humble ourselves before God, and ask his intervention. If God puts it on your heart, I hope you will. I hope he'll put it on your heart and on your church's heart that we will pray that God will help us as a people get back to where we need to be with him. And sometimes it takes we, the people, you and I, 
to lead those people who think they are our political leaders in Washington, D.C., maybe we need to lead them in the right way to go. And wouldn't that be refreshing if they would listen to us on something like this? So don't be discouraged. As long as there's a God in heaven, there is hope. But be realistic. Unless the people of God turn back to God and intervene and pray and ask God to help us, and unless we live faithfully before God, then there isn't any hope. You see, it depends on our prayers and our actions. If we turn back to God, then we have hope. If we refuse, then I'm afraid that God may give us what we ask for in our refusal. But there's always hope. As long as there's a God in heaven, he can intervene in ways you and I could never imagine. And there are stories of that all through the the early days of our country, how God intervened and helped, both militarily and in other ways, to preserve the nation and to form this nation that became one nation under God. And we who acknowledge God need to lead the way in bringing our nation back to where it belongs. I'm tired of hearing people criticize people of good Christian faith, good-hearted people, for caring about the country and praying and giving thanks for the country. I'm tired of having people mix that up and say somehow our concern for and our desire for the nation to be revived and turned back to God is somehow an improper expression of Christian faith. No, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're to overcome evil with good. And when we pray and ask God to help us, isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that what we want to do is overcome evil with good? And can't we all do that if we will come before God, seek his face, and humble ourselves? We certainly can. Well, there's more to this story of how they came to the conclusion that we had to have a revolution. And we'll get into that in the next little bit. I hope you'll stay with us because we'll be right back. I'm Pastor Rick. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. It really is a remarkable heritage that we have that in this country we have liberty that was given to us as a gift by God's involvement in the early forming of our country. I don't think we should take that lightly. I think we should give thanks. And I hope you will on this season when we celebrate our independence. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Church just like yours, I hope, because if yours is a church that's faithful to the Bible, depends on God's promises and precepts from the scriptures, to guide us in the way we should go, then that's the kind of church we are. And if you haven't found that kind of a church, I want to encourage you to find a church that's closest to the Bible. Don't worry about the label. There are some labels that are better, frankly, than others. But what really matters is does that local group of people have faithfulness to God, and will they follow what God says, and will they follow in the way God leads them to go? Well, we've been talking about the context, I guess you'd say, of the early days of the forming of our country. And we talked about Daniel and how Daniel knew when to draw the line and stand up. And then we kind of ask ourselves, how did our early founders know how to draw that line? And I suggested that that there were two things and that they that particularly stand out to us is their Christian orientation, their understanding of the Christian faith and of the Bible, their dependence upon God to intervene and help them. That certainly guided their thinking. But there's another aspect of that that sometimes I think we forget. And I don't want to get into that in too much detail because it could be quite detailed and you might want to to look into this. But one of the things that, that some historians recognize, I know historians are like every other discipline, they argue amongst themselves about a lot of things. But in particular, one historian wrote a book and he traced the whole idea of liberty as we know it in this country through the English-speaking world and said that really liberty is a gift that the English-speaking world has given to the world at large, this understanding of liberty. And so I think that in addition to their Christian orientation and understanding and faith in God, the founders also understood the history that led them to this point. And if you trace the history through the English-speaking people through England and and all of the things that went on, there are a number of formative documents that laid the groundwork for our Declaration of Independence. 
There was the 1100 Charter of Liberties, where the people required the king to keep his promises and to limit himself in what he could do. Yes, you're king, but that doesn't mean you have unlimited authority to do whatever you want to do. You might remember a document called the Magna Carta, 20, uh, uh, part, pardon me, 1215, and it was a promise that built on the earlier document and the continuing understanding of English people that the king was limited and they needed to, they, the king, needed to understand, uh, the kings, plural, I guess, that, they're, that they were not unlimited and they needed to give the people liberty, particularly religious liberty. Later on, the people drafted another petition called Petition of Rights of 1628, and then later the Grand Remonstrance of 1641. All of these things were continual developments of this idea of liberty. Later, there was something called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and again, the people said to the king, you can't do what you're doing. We have our liberties, and you need to respect them. And they got the king to do just just that. And then finally, there was a Bill of Rights in 1689. You probably didn't know there was a Bill of Rights earlier than our Constitution, but there was. Well, all of these things were, were building blocks for our understanding of what it means to be a free people. So when it came time to, to draft the Declaration of Independence, we had a basis both in a moral understanding of, of the Christian faith and of what was right and wrong before God, but we also had in our leaders at that time an understanding of what it meant historically. They were simply asserting what they believed were their rights as English subjects. They were not trying, and you can read some of their their letters to the king, they were not trying to be abusive or disrespectful. They were simply saying to the king, you can't do this, and you should know better. Well, it got really messy in a lot of ways, and that's unfortunate, but they were doing their best to make sure people understood that they, they were just simply carrying out both what God had provided and what English law down through the years had provided for free people. And they weren't really, how, how should we say, they weren't really uh, trying to be rebels in the sense that they had a, a desire to have their own way that we might think of somebody says it's going to be my way or the highway. They weren't doing that so much as they were asserting that, you know, this has been our understanding as long as we've had understanding that this is the way we should go and that the king should allow us that. And when the king refused, then they had another decision to make. And that led to the decision to write the Declaration of Independence and sign it. Much of the decision had been made prior to that formal establishment of that. The, the shot heard around the world had taken place more than a year before. And so that that's kind of where they were coming from as, as leaders of the nation, both as understanding the Bible and understanding the history. And so today we can use some of those same ideas to help us know where to draw the line and, and how to go from there so that we don't end up being people who do what's right in our own eyes, but we understand that we have a history to build on and we have to use our good judgment 
again, recognizing the primacy of Christ, the priority of the scriptures, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. And so we, we want justice and we want things to be done right, and we say that to our government, but that also requires a moral authority that means we need to live right and be right as well. We don't just do whatever we want to and then say we want what we want. We have to have some basis for that, and that's what the founders did, and that's what we can do as well. And so today, you know, we, we recognize that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And one of those things that, that we recognize as right and wrong is slavery. And so that gets brought up sometimes in, in the context of the revolution. Well, what about this business of slavery? Because, well, they had slaves, didn't they? Well, yeah, they did. And, and what do we want to do about that? What do we think about that? How do we deal with that very thing? Well, we read the Declaration of Independence and it gives us a lot of good sounding words, right sounding words, and absolutely incredible, incredible insights into things. So it begins, the Declaration begins, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So that's very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting that he... Uh, he, in writing, and Thomas Jefferson writing this, and he used other sources for this as well, so I don't, I don't want us to think that he came up with this without being aware. He was aware of some of these other things that I mentioned, and other writings that, that we haven't mentioned here. Uh, but he, he says here a number of compelling things, and he re refers to the laws of nature and of nature's God, so it, more or less saying that this is just the way it is, because we all know this is the way it is, but then he goes on to say something that's very significant, that a respect for the opinions of other people means they should explain what they're doing, that they should explain what their separation is all about, what their rebellion is all about. And so then he goes on in the second paragraph to begin to explain some of that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, 
it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then he goes on, and I'm not going to read all of them, he goes on to list the things that they were concerned about, that the king had done that he should not have done and was not properly authorized to do. In other words, they're making the case before everyone, here's why we had to do this. Now, this is a brilliant document, well thought out, well understood, but some people get a little concerned about parts of it, and I want to just address one of the parts of that because I think it's helpful on this occasion when we celebrate our independence and that we recognize we do have good reason to celebrate. Well, a lot of people get hung up when we read the section that says we hold these truths to be self-evident evident that all men are created equal. And then they want to say, hold on, and they want to point to slavery and the problem of slavery in those days. Well, no one denies that it was a problem. Okay, no one denies that it shouldn't have happened. We all grieve that it did. Absolutely, we did. But did you know, and I just recently learned this, that the United States was the first country to outlaw the slave trade? We did it in this country three weeks before William Wilberforce did it in England. So we outlawed the slave trade in this country. But even before that, here during the writing of the Declaration of Independence, we were prepared to make a very strong statement about slavery. You see, slavery existed in this part of the world long before we became at all affiliated as a nation, before we became anything close to what you call the United States. It was introduced into this part of the world. It wasn't our country that started it. Our country formed from people who wanted to have liberty, and then one of their first attempts was to get rid of slavery. So I mentioned that in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson listed a lot of the offenses that the king had committed and how they served as a reason for the independence. Well, one of the statements in one of the early drafts, and I think it made into made it into the third draft, if I understand correctly, there's this statement. Now, this wasn't in the final decora- declaration, but just before they reached final agreement, here is a statement that had been included in that. Listen carefully. He, referring to the king, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. 
and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has also obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Now, that's a lot of language that sounds complicated to us, and I understand that. They use words, and they use them in ways that we don't. The language has changed. It's been a while since that. But the really interesting and important observation we should make here is that in an early draft of the Declaration of Independence, one of the objections that the founders of our nations had concerning the king's behavior is that the king had introduced slavery into this land, and they found that objectionable. I'm not defending the individuals in that room who owned slaves, not at all. But they were determined to make a statement against slavery. But it didn't make the final cut. That's the reality. You look at the final draft of the Declaration of Independence and it didn't make the final cut. That's disappointing. It's sad. But it's really remarkable that it got as far as it did. And the only reason it didn't make the final cut was two of the colonies refused to approve that language. Now, people might say, well, why didn't they do it anyway? Well, you can second guess that all day long, I suppose. But the reality is they knew they had to to stay together if they were going to survive this. They knew they couldn't be fractured or divided because if you're divided, then it's easier for you to be conquered and to lose. And so because of the objections of two of the colonies, this language was removed and wasn't it. Now, you might say, well, I never heard this. Well, I hadn't heard it either until recently, but I found it. It's on the Monticello.org website. And I saw myself the original document, the original draft that included this language. It's really, really remarkable. And I think we should give thanks that they were that committed. But we also need to recognize that because two of the colonies refused to sign a declaration with that language in it, it was taken out. The two colonies that refused to sign, and it's no stain on them today. I don't mean to throw stones at them today. It's just the reality of the world that that existed in that time. But the two colonies that refused to sign were Georgia and South Carolina. Because of those two colonies saying, no, we're not going to sign that, it was taken out, and the decision was made to go forward with the Declaration without that language objecting to slavery, accusing the king of introducing such an offensive and horrendous thing into this nation. Now, we can all be disappointed that it didn't make it, rightfully so, but you know what I found so remarkable and so encouraging was that it made it that far is that in the midst of all these contentious things that were going on, that language made it that far. And and to me, that's reason to give thanks. That's reason to give thanks because it shows that there was a lot of godly influence. Maybe not enough. Okay, you can argue that. Uh, How much is enough? You can argue that. I, I, I get that. But let's not be tripped up by quibbling over things. Let's let's recognize what was going on. They really did want to make a statement. And it was only because two colonies refused to go along that they didn't make that statement. Really remarkable. Really remarkable. I didn't know that. I've heard so much about the accusations of slavery this and slavery that. 
I was really, really encouraged to come across this idea that those early men, they recognized that we needed to be better and that the king had introduced into this, this part of the world what would become a nation. Wasn't yet, but would become a nation. He had introduced that into, into our national life, so to speak, and we didn't like it. And we believed that was an evidence of how he had behaved badly and gave us reason, reason, sound reason, to go forward with independence. I think that's absolutely worth celebrating, don't you? I think it's absolutely worth celebrating. We should remind each other of that, how close it was to making that statement. And we should remind each other that we were the first nation year later to outlaw the slave trade. That it wasn't until some time later that slavery itself was, out, was prohibited, where the slaves were freed. But think about that. We were the first nation to outlaw the slave trade. That's really cool, don't you think? Now, we, we want our leaders to make better decisions. We celebrate the leaders of the past who made good decisions. And yet, I think we all have to come to grips with, and I think you would agree with me, that there's not a shred of hope that politics will save us. Yes, we need good-hearted people in the political environment. I absolutely believe that, and I celebrate the ones that are there, and I want to support them doing the right things. I've met a number of them and heard many of them speak. One one former Florida senator that I knew pretty well, I heard him say publicly that everything he did was an attempt to do right before God. Well, that's, that's the kind of people we need. It's a tough environment, but we need those kind of people. But at the same time, that's not going to save us. The political environment is not going to save us. If we're going to be saved as a nation, if we're going to preserve the liberty God has given us, and I know many people are saying it's hanging by a thread, and I do not disagree with them. What's going to save us is a return to us being a godly people and a moral people. That's what's going to make the difference. And we have to share that good news with people around us that we can be, by the grace of God, that kind of people again. Now, what do I mean when I say that that's what's going to save us? Well, we have good laws that are ignored. Lots of times they're ignored. You can trace that through the development of laws and the failure to acknowledge the restraint of the Constitution. And so what I mean is we need to be the right kind of people, and we need to elect those right kind of people, because then they will do two important things. They will show self-restraint. You see, this power business is very seductive. And when people get a little whiff of power, they want to do everything they can in their power to exert their power and to get their way. And we need the right kind of people to show self-restraint. That's what concerns me about the good people that are in important decision-making places now. Will they show self-restraint? Or will they just use their ability to bully us to go in a different direction where they get their way instead of the right way? So godly people will require of themselves, self-restraint. That's the only way we can defund the police, by the way. I, I find it amusing that people want to defund the police. Well, they're finding out that's a terrible idea, and it is. But we could defund the police if everybody followed the, 
Ten Commandments, if everybody followed Jesus and the way he said we should live and treat each other, we wouldn't need police. That's what I mean by self-restraint. Well, I want you to be encouraged because we have a lot of good reason to stand and give thanks to God for liberty. We have got a lot of good reasons to rejoice. We have serious things to address, but we address them by being the people of God as he's called us to be, by following Jesus and doing what we know is right and refusing to do wrong and trusting God while we stretch in his direction. So have faith, have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we'll pick it up again next week.